their city trying to compete to sustain itself? And what is the relationship between where we are, who we know ourselves as, and where we go? And so much of the conversation has been culture versus mm. infrastructure, but both kind of decenter the people who create the culture and who would benefit the most from the infrastructure. This is The Move. I'm Susan McDowell. And I'm Ayushi Roy. Hey, Ayushi. Hey. It's good to see you again today. Good to see you, too. Yeah, and you know, today we have a good friend of ours in the studio Yes, we again. do. It's not often we actually get to sit with someone that both of us have known mm-hmm. really well. And also, for our audience out there, this is our second interview with Dejan. The first one you didn't get to hear because it was when we were learning how to actually use this equipment. We invited him in just because he was around. He to, was our guinea pig. He was our <laughs> guinea pig to play with, you know? And then uh, we went back and listened to the recording to see how we sound, and we said, actually, he sounds much better. We need to do a show with him. <laughs> he played with us. <laughs> yeah, he played with us. So uh, Dijon's back with us. Yeah, he, he was an AmeriCorps volunteer in New Orleans working for an organization called Broad Community Connections. They do a lot of work revitalizing Broad Street in New Orleans and working with these small business owners on Bayou Road, uh, a predominantly black business owners area. And Dijon has so much incredible experience to share with us. So here's Dijon. Those first few months were kind of the most difficult even with family in the city, because I was rediscovering the city in a very personal way as an adult. And working with those business owners showed me a different approach to work. Before I had been a person to like try to create a plan and be very deliberate and, and execute and be timely and efficient and mm. strategic. And for the first time, I had to like let go of all of that mm. pre-established knowledge. I had to sit back and listen and not take action and really kind of suspend the need to fix and really digest what people were saying. And I remember trying to build a sense of relationship with these business owners. One business owner in particular, I sat in their business for maybe five hours, six hours before I even got a conversation. But it was emphasized to me that that relationship was the most important. But I don't think the person or the people who told me about this business owner knew that I would wait around five (laughs) or six hours. And I didn't know I would wait around five or six hours. But um, thinking about cultivating relationships in a a very intimate way, even in a professional setting, was something I hadn't been taught. It's interesting, too, because you have this whole thing sitting someplace for five hours really kind of emphasizes the importance of presence, of just like right. being mm-hmm. in space with someone. And I'm sure during that five hours you weren't even talking and no. engaged, or you were just there. I literally just sat and watched customers come in and out. And oh my God. <laughs> the, like the, the navigation of space. And, you know, in a way, I got to understand the business owner a lot better from an operational standpoint, but also also from like, the intimate relationship that small business owners have with their business. Mm. Because we talk about business in a very... Money-minded. Yeah, it's like, oh, everything's so yeah. money-minded. But if yeah. you look at the numbers, 50% of businesses in this country alone are small business operated. Mm. And there's like kind of a question about what the size of a small business is. Right. right? Mm. But on average, these are people who are employing people that they're building relationships with. And their customers, right? right? It's all, it really is all about relationships. Right. That sense of pride and that sense of personalization. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it was just something so valuable about that experience and watching different business owners and how mm. they cultivated that, that it was a very interesting space to try to figure out how to bridge mm-hmm. them together, mm-hmm. especially not having been a business owner, at least not at that point in time. It's just so funny to me to hear you say that because the way in which I think I imagine business from afar, not while actually being a participant in it as a mm-hmm. customer, probably because I don't also own a business. <laughs> but the way I think of it is just so transactive, right? Like you get that you get in there, you give them your money, you get the thing, and you walk out. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because my parents, who are immigrants to this country, still think it's so absurd how much conversation actually happens when they go purchase something. Oh, hey, how's it going? Oh, like it's like there's a whole two minutes that goes by before you actually say, could I get a small latte, please? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And my parents still find that funny because from you know wherever they've been raised in a variety of countries, that was never their experience. Mm. And hearing you say how much these small business ownerships or small business experience mm. is about relationship building, just really, for me at least, puts a kink Mm-hmm. and kind of validates the way that my parents do see businesses in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it's really powerful because, like you started off saying, it's the well-being economy. Mm-hmm. And thinking about economics as less about money and more about sort of holistic understanding mm-hmm. of a human, the power of the business in that case, if you look at the business through that lens, is incredible. Yeah. Right? All of a sudden, these small business owners, these mom-and-pop shops have so much power um, in a really beautiful way to like heal, to be present for the wellness of the people in their surrounding space. And it raises a question for me, or I don't know if it's a question, but an observation or something I'm curious about, which is that you know, we talk on the show a lot about kind of creating new kind of civic infrastructures and new networks that are needed to actually build a more inclusive public. And I wonder how from your own experience, like how does a city like New Orleans Mm. see the business owners in relationship to an opportunity to really build kind of public participation, kind of civic Mm -hmm. engagement? Or are they just like only seen as part of the economy? Mm -hmm. Let's deal with that and not realizing that these are a set of people who have a set of relationships who could do really interesting things about knitting together a public in this. So you know there's this like there's this duality, right? Um, And speaking to a lot of you had mentioned on issue about like the social part of business. Mm -hmm. And I always thought about business being a reinforcer of what social norms are Mm -hmm. or what's acceptable or what civility looks like. And so what civility looks like. Oh cool. Yeah. Like I remember being in the same business, the same bookstore for about five hours, right? And the business owner was introducing me to someone who came in and referred to me as an organizer. And it kind of threw me for a loop. What do you mean I'm an <laughs> organizer? I just, just trying to sit and talk with all these business owners and get them to work together. And for a moment, I kept, had the question, like, is this a form of political organizing? Is this a political action? Like, you know, because our mind defaults to a form of I'm like, just making friends. Right? Like, I don't know. You know, I'm just sitting here listening to everyone and trying to figure out if there's a glue. And, you know, to hold that in parallel to the city's view of small business entrepreneurship, I think on the one end there is this like respect. Mm-hmm. And so the work that I was doing was respected by the business owners. Like they mm-hmm. knew that them congealing 
and being more targeted meant that they had more civic power. Right. And the city knows that small businesses are what evoke the, the character. But I think on the other end, they're battling and grappling with the idea of big business, the larger economic development schemes. How do we mm. get that Fortune 500 company here and get the 30,000 jobs that are like 20,000 already taken <laughs> up and 10,000 people aren't prepared to take? And because they're a city trying to compete to sustain itself. And, you know, it's kind of torn. And it's still grappling with this idea of this place is correct me, uh, you may have to go back and check this, but the last time I checked the numbers, the arts, culture, and hospitality industry in New Orleans gross is about $7.3 billion. Okay. Just the industry within that city. And yet there's this kind of grappling with, do we stick with our bread and butter? Our city is falling apart. There are coastal issues. There are educational Mm. issues. There's gentrification. What is the relationship between where we are, who we know ourselves as, and where we go? And so much of the conversation has been culture versus mm. infrastructure mm. or the kind of newness, but both kind of decenter the people who create right. the culture and who would benefit the most from the infrastructure. And so for me, the, the best tool that I've seen thus far, and to my fortune, was to be able to work directly with those business owners, mm. because they were the ones creating the culture, who would benefit from the infrastructure, who have political agency as a collective. Mm. I don't know how to round that out. <laughs> I, it's still something that, that is this well of knowledge and reflection that revisits me even now. I mean, what does it say about the city that they choose to pit something like infrastructure against culture? And is that a valid pittance is not the word? Pittance. <laughs> is that a valid pitting or uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for, guys? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I like, I like pit, pittance. Pittance? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like tuppence, like the British. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not like you gave like Lutherans to be able to go to heaven. Like isn't that what a pittance? I, I don't know. Pittance. Right? Like European history from eighth grade. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's just a bigger question about control. Mm. And I don't think it has anything to do with the value of culture or the value of the bike lanes that come in mm. or the green infrastructure that's put in or the educational reform. Like, Ultimately, I think it's just a battle of power and who has agency over their environment. Mm. And I've had then and now thought about the role of the relationship building, the collaboration process as very central to getting the business owners to see they have a voice in this Mm. too. They have agency. But even in a microcosm, like really trying to figure out what is a practice to get them to not only insert their voice within the collective, but to hear other voices and to hear when there is some commonality. And because they've kind of been taught to fend for themselves as individuals, right? even in a space of, of a collective, it's like I am worried about my business and its daily operations and its survival. And it can be kind of hard to suspend that for a moment to say, wait, right. you and I, are, we're both buying food from the same distributor. If we buy it in a larger bulk and I have a trusting relationship with you, we can actually get it cheaper. Mm. 
right? Like small right. things, right? It's like actually meeting every week, mm -hmm. every Monday morning at eight, which is still crazy looking back on it. <laughs> that a group of people would decide to gather to have a discussion. And this is the start of their week. But then putting things on like the city's first bike festival. Mm -hmm. Like what challenges arrive hmm. from one, taking up a larger portion of public space, but then the exchange of value. How do we collaborate with each other? How do we deal with outside parties? What is our vision? And what is our larger vision? And how do our individual visions for our own mm -hmm. success mm -hmm. fit into the same space? And to even feel like you have enough value add or power value adds to financial terms see already i'm like falling <laughs> back into this but to feel enough agency as a business owner to say hey yeah we will have these collective meetings and we will put on these mm -hmm. bike fests and other things because we know we have value i think an insecure business would never even think mm -hmm. to to do something like that you definitely get to see the personalities and, and power dynamics within the small group, right? So even if we take away like the city and big development and gentrification, when you enter a smaller space of business owners and a few property owners, you get to see who believes their voice is valuable, hmm. who believes their voice isn't valuable for the space, who's just listening, hmm. and who has an agenda already kind of pre-established. And all those things are like necessary for space, right? Um, and they change. But I think I've been fortunate enough to play facilitator. And I thought originally, because I'm not a business owner, what could I add to this space, right? Mm. These people have been running businesses and owning properties since before my parents were born, some of them, right? And what do I add to a space where I've never even touched an income statement at this point? Mm -hmm. Did you figure out the answer to that? Well, he touched the income statement. Right. <laughs> I did, I, you know, right? I got to see a couple of those things and I was like, hey, I'm going to give that to someone else <laughs> but um i realized like i didn't have an agenda in the space outside of seeing them work together and attempting to get them to see each other in mm -hmm. a different way and without getting like too specific you know there were dynamics that said hey well we own most of the property on the block we want it to be prioritized towards black culture mm -hmm. the city is gentrifying there's no commercial corridor that is focused on black patronage and, and black ownership. Right. This is our exclusive agenda. And then there are people who move in from the French quarters, places that are more open to like selling these ideas or the perspective of what New Orleans is, the voodoo culture or mm -hmm. it's kind of French allure, right? And then they enter the space and then there's tension because they don't necessarily fit within the guise of mm. black prioritization, black owned. They may be black friendly. Mm. But it's like, are you going to support this larger vision? And then for me, it's like, okay, well, how do I help to mitigate this like hidden tension that grows, this resentment that may grow, if not addressed? And then you have people who don't fit within that guise, right? That uh, black ownership and patronage, but they're like, hey, like we want to center ourselves into community and like we want to be more community based as an organization as a performance organization, and yet we're being viewed as the gentrifier. Mm -hmm. So then how do you reconcile a group that has well intentions with a group that's saying, hey, like you're removing us. So then, you know, everything becomes a training or like a, a relationship exercise. And there was a lot of time spent in the group, but there was just 
an equal amount of time spent one-on-one. Working with people one-on-one about? Yeah, just, just either being in their space, having a coffee, bringing people to pay bills, helping them clean, whatever it took, because I realized the understanding that personal relationship not only built trust, but gave me a bigger view for which to see them and not just in that moment of contention, mm. which most of them were only seeing each other in that moment of contention, right? I know you were there and you were also inside of another organization mm-hmm. kind of doing that work that represented its own kinds of tensions. Oh yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna make some assumptions. Okay. No, okay. that's fine. And Go then they'd be all wrong. We may have to resuscitate <laughs> the end of this and everything. So I was in Chicago last weekend. Mm-hmm. And we went to this restaurant on the south side of Chicago. I won't say the name of it. Mm-hmm. And we were actually in town. We were there because there's the international, the American Restauranters Association or something like going on that. And we had some friends who were chefs and they invited us to come. So we go, right? And they want to go out to dinner. You know, it's Chicago. It's a food city, you know, and they're from out of the country. And we go to a couple of places, and then one night they says, you know, one of the chefs says, I really want to go. I really want to eat some soul food. You know, I've never been to a black restaurant. I want to, I want to do this, right? And so we knew of a couple of places, so we go. And there's a, there's a lot what I'm going to say, okay, no, 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 <laughs> in all of this. Go ahead. <laughs> but they go, and I don't want to say too much because I don't want to call out the place, right? So if I describe it too much, you'll, people will say, oh, I know exactly which place that is. <laughs> but it was a really well-known place, really well-established folks like that. And like they went in and they said, oh, I don't, we don't want to eat here. Mm. And it wasn't about the people so much as it was like presentation, hmm. how things were laid out. Mm-hmm what for them signaled cleanliness and quality mm. and what didn't, right? Yeah. There were all these, like, signals, mm-hmm. the chefs. So anyway, ended up having a conversation about this. And we then left that place and went to another restaurant, which was this Argentinian restaurant and run by these Argentinians. Very different kind of place and so on mm. and so forth. And what I realized something, which was interesting, and I want to ask you this in relationship to the conversations in New Orleans, mm-hmm. right? The conversations of the black business owners historically catering to a community and knowing how to do that and the community being comfort, finding both comfort in that mm-hmm. and settling in that. Mm-hmm. And then outsiders come in and they actually push the envelope. They push the envelope on what? quality means, what design means, what aesthetic mm. means. They keep pushing the envelope. Hmm. And then people start to make choices differently because all of a sudden, mm. oh, things are different now. Mm. Yeah, we probably would have been like that 20 years ago, but today that's not acceptable. We're going to be this. You know, it's just, mm. I think you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> and exactly where you're going with this. Right? You know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. And it's a tough one, right? Because yeah. there's a way in which the comfort of not changing is really important. Mm-hmm. Right in a community where change is devastating everything. And so you want to hold on. And yet, at the same time, it becomes hard to then change and adapt in a way that allows you to hold on. Mm. And then if you change too much, the community says, you left us. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, yeah, that, that hits. That's salient. I can... <laughs> 
Yeah, I can feel that. And it's funny because that same kind of trend is showing up even in some of the dialogue of my coursework. Mm-hmm. Specifically, funny, taking a class about black businesses and entrepreneurship and, oh, that's heavy. That's so heavy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll start with this. I would heard this quote about what makes a great person. Mm. And it's so simple, but it, it just kind of blew my mind. And the quote went something like, a great person isn't good or bad. A great person is aware. And first I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> what? what kind of crazy, like, you know. California stuff is that? Right. <laughs> hey, whoa. <laughs> No shade to Cali, no shade to Cali. But, I haven't uh, said a word this whole time about no okay? <laughs> you both. Other, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just hey. aware. <laughs> right? I do a lot of yoga, guys. <laughs> but I sat with that for a while, thinking about my time on Bayou Road and working with other business owners also. Yeah. There was a question about vision. And I remember talking to one business owner in particular about vision. What is your personal vision for this world? You hold a lot of influence in this space. And the response was something like, well, we don't have to wait until white folks come in and take over. Mm-hmm. We can have our own wine bars and cigar bars. And mm-hmm. to the average listener, it's like, oh, well, yeah, we have the power. Great. But what I heard was you're mirroring the success of what you believe a space shows like. There were other comments about orderliness and like cleanliness and standards and and then you think about the perceptions about black owned businesses being not of the same quality or not being neutral enough, right? Space neutral, taste neutral. I think when I was younger, I, I held more of the that same view, like, okay, well, cool, if we just clean it up and make it shiny and and then I realized, oh, wait, this could also be a version of like bleaching culture. And you had also mentioned about the opposite, right? Like staying in this place of like, okay, this is just how we've always done things. I've had worked with business owners who said like, this is just where we are and that's where we're gonna go. But then there's this thing in the middle, right? This is culture is not a stagnant thing. It changes over time and there are choices that you get to make, some you don't. And so what if the decision is, cool, I'm just gonna paint a new sign, or I'm just gonna consider that there are new norms, so I will use e-commerce a little bit more. Right. Right, because if you wanna stay within time, there are tools that you may have to use to remain relevant. And on the other end, if you say, you know what, like this is just where we're gonna go and this is the space we're gonna hold until we can't anymore. But I think the recognition, the awareness offers so much more to each business than the decision to say, we're gonna clean up or we're gonna like be so against the grain. And it has to be um, a fearlessness and a sense of investment and personal vision, which I think also is like the, the real thing. Because people are lazy. Business owners are not. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm even thinking about, you know, the part of the story that you showed and, and how much we rely on what we've been told about how spaces should be. Exactly. As like the standard. And we use that and we test everything mm-hmm. against that. And because we're told that that is where it should be, and if it's not there, mm-hmm. then we reject it as like invaluable. 
So I, th- I think the way I've like tried to address that is by suspending my own perspective and very willingly asking the people around me to challenge me on things and to be very open with me in a way that they may think may not be comfortable. But I'm like, how do I plan to grow if, if I'm just kind of stuck in my same perspective all of my life? Right. Something you said earlier about balancing authenticity and accountability mm-hmm. at the individual level mm-hmm. and the acknowledging of that sort of self that you were describing mm-hmm. resurfacing for me as I'm hearing you talk about the business and the sort of question of relevance versus comfort, redefinition of standards. Is this bleaching culture? Is this a degree of internalized depression or is it just what I need to do to keep the business alive, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what you were saying about awareness or the authenticity and accountability duality mm-hmm. is as true for an organization like a business as it is for a person, for the self, right? And it's kind of like, well, I wonder if as long as the business acknowledges its own personal vision and stays true to that mm-hmm. and simultaneously holds itself accountable mm-hmm. to that authentic personal vision, if that's really the answer in itself, as opposed to the struggle to stay relevant. Mm-hmm. Because so, I mean, just like thinking about it from the, I think, very colonial <laughs> studies perspective, which is a big part of my family's narrative, I think about the way in which the British and in India spent a lot of time convincing indigenous Indian residents that they smelled bad, that their food smelled bad. And that was a way, among many other ways, to clean up, quote unquote, the place, because it didn't adhere to the standards of what a good food should smell like. Mm. And Indian people being stinky is a trope that continues today in a country thousands of miles away from both India and the UK. Mm. I still feel as a you know, second grader, I was I would never take leftovers from family dinner mm. to lunch at school because I knew I had to eat around all of these non-Indian people at my school who would think that my curry smelled bad. <laughs> and at the same time, growing up, I know, and even as a kid, I knew that the best Indian restaurants are the ones that have the shittiest bathrooms and the grossest floors and the grossest tables. Because let's be real, if the server has time to wipe down your table, the food's not getting as much attention. (laughs) And those are the kind of like tabas and restaurants that only American or South Asian Americans will frequent. Mm -hmm. And we kind of like it that way, you know? Like if you're willing to tread into our terrain, Mm. good on you. But there is that exactly that duality of like, okay, is this me buying into what an other mm-hmm. has told me? Or, you know, am I just being true to the way that my food deserves to be served? Yeah, that brings up two things for me, right? I hate to be the cult guy, right? <laughs> but I did hear this quote and I gotta give reference to, to Jill Scott. I was and fortunate <laughs> enough to be in this like space of dialogue. And she said, and thinking about our motivations, we have to ask two things, for whom and for what mm-hmm. or why, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, for who do we do it? Right. Like, what? who are we trying to please? And why were we trying to please? And to think about that in a very simple way, and, and I think also about this organization question, right? Like, mm-hmm. as individuals, we understand that a collective of us is a, like, we're a part of an organization, right? And so, even, but even if we change the rules of the organization, it doesn't mean our individual behaviors change, mm-hmm. right? And so, what it requires is the choice to take a risk, the choice to 
be completely vulnerable and to be wrong and to maybe accidentally cause injury and to change because you can't change in a vacuum. Mm. You can't. Mm. This is a, a participatory thing. And the, the way culture is developed is a group of people agree that something exists and they maintain it. No different than your comment about the colonial history and, and the kind of pigeoning of smell as a, a tool of subjugation. Like a group of people had a feeling made a decision that that feeling was valid, maintained that feeling, projected that feeling, then created policy, then created rules, then created media, and now have gotten a larger culture to buy into it, right? No different than with colorism, no different than with capitalism. And I think a lot about the American dream and you know what's considered normal, like, Again, it starts with an idea, a group of people believing in an idea, them verbalizing that idea, and then it's mm -hmm. propaganda or media or reinforcement. And so now the people who on the benefit side feel higher, but also feel the need to maintain, which is one struggle, and the people who don't identify feel dejected and are always either reaching for or feeling like they're not a part. That's good. I like that. That's really good. Yeah. I'm going back to what you said when we first started out, you know, because you know, she said we were here. One of the design principles we're focusing on this whole thing is around collaboration. And mm -hmm. Part of what I continue to hear you say over and over and over again, that the route to collaboration begins with the self. Mm -hmm. And that how you enter those spaces mm -hmm. says a lot about that you can't just look at collaboration about what's going on among the group. You have to look at it really what's going on with the individual mm -hmm. inside and take care of that also. Mm. That, you know, both of those are kind of needed. You used to always say like in group therapy, you know, in group therapy there were always three people in the room. Mm -hmm. so the facilitator, the individual, right? And then the group. Mm. But in actuality there's also the fourth, which is all that together. Right, which is a totally mm. different thing, yeah. right? Never pay attention, but we often don't pay attention enough to this kind of individual piece in these things, and really mm. thinking about kind of collaboration that way. And I guess for me, one of the things I'm picking up from this conversation with you is the difficulty of collaboration. You know, you've taken a very small case we've kind of looked at, mm. right, in a city that is undergoing tremendous issues on the table gentrification, economics, environmental questions, and it's, it's just all on the table, and race, and it's just like, everything's there. So you take this one little small piece, which all of that is at play there, right? And you kind of look at well, what does it mean to build collaboration mm -hmm. here, right? If you kind of look at that one, and you start to see, as you say, all the tensions that are in that, what it takes for someone who's outside to be in that space to kind of just pause, to listen, to pay attention, to build, but looking at it as building relationships. And then I think if you extrapolate that to the city, then you kind of say, well, are we doing that in all these other spaces too? Mm. Are we paying attention to that in all these <laughs> other places, right? And then maybe if we could do that, it would make some difference, right? Because it's so complicated that it may be, it may be beyond the scope of thinking about, we can tackle this 
collaboratively as a city as a whole. But what we can do is create much more authentic collaborative opportunities in all these instances where people are living with these issues. Yeah. I think there has to be like a an investment before the issue mm-hmm. or away from the issue explicitly because people come with their guards yep. and they come ready for, for war. Mm-hmm. And if you're on edge, all it takes is one trip. And, there you are. And listening to you speak, and then going home and worked on this initiative between um, department that I'm in and efforts to bridge a relationship back funny with Bayou Road and more in general with New Orleans in a more formative and long-term way. And by the end of the event, I felt super compelled to say something that typically I I don't take up space to do. Mm -hmm. And this is as we're leaving. And I remember saying, before you leave, make sure you talk to two people that you don't know. And I could have just left it there, right? Right. Because the room was very diverse and people who had all, who'd been around the city. And, and although New Orleans is super connected, these people, most people in the room didn't know each other. But then I went on to say, um, you know, we invest in a lot of relationships here and we're very connected. But we need to have more meaningful relationships with each other. We need to learn how to be a different type of family and how to open our minds about where we stand and what we think we know and be open to to learning. So don't leave this place before you get the contact information from those two people and realize if we actually want this city to change, these bubbles have to burst. It's not an option anymore. Either we'll burst them or they'll blow up on us. Right. And I walked away and felt this wind that hit me right after. And I was like, what the hell did I just do? What was that? And like, you know, people responded to that. And I got actually a few phone calls after about that moment. And there were things said like, you know, you're right. Like we stay in our bubbles, you know, the economic development people know each other, the community people know each other. And like, you know, there may be some intersection and we kind of work together on certain projects, but like there are entire groups of people who don't even know these conversations are happening. Mm. And for whatever reason, we value the civic organizing knowledge and the economic development knowledge over people who actually live in the neighborhood and may have something to offer. Exactly. Who don't know about these civic engagement spaces or how to put together the income statement or performer, or like give people an opportunity. And don't think the barrier to entry for relationships has to be so high. You know, someone asked me here in Boston at a panel about how do we engage in communities better and in general in Massachusetts, like communities of color and undocumented communities. And I sarcastically started to say, have you ever just tried to go into a restaurant and buy some food and say, hey, (laughs) like, just say, hey, how are you doing? How's your day going? And genuinely, like, care for two seconds. And there was just, like, this amount of confusion that arose amongst this person's face. And I said, no, (laughs) I hadn't really thought, thought about it. Yeah. So I realized, like, our problems are way more simple than we sometimes think they are. It's true, and I, I know in my 
on heart, <laughs> character, I believe that. And yet at the same time, particularly as black people in this country, every day we get a video mm-hmm. posted that says just the opposite. Mm-hmm. It just says, now this stuff is so deep that people are just gonna walk up you on the street mm-hmm. for no reason whatsoever and just like call the cops on you, do this, do that. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it seems like we're in this really tough space, right, where there's, there's a harsh reality that we know exists out there. And maybe it's back to what you said before about some set of people believing something and utilizing the media or mm-hmm. tools and getting it there. But that harsh reality we see isn't necessarily the dominant thing. Mm-hmm. And that we have to kind of both tend to that thing, but also really step into the other space about whether the dominant world is a different world. Mm-hmm. So we need to have these conversations. We need to step into spaces assuming that people want to talk. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, mm-hmm. have some way of dealing with these other things that are, are far different than that. Also, as we were talking about culture and evolution of culture and stuff like that, I was sitting here thinking about Black Panther. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was thinking about a vision of a reality that didn't gloss over the complexities of being human, Mm. right? All the difficulties of that and all the tensions that are in that, but did raise the question of a different possibility. Mm. And I I think right now in this world, we're in this space of the different possibility, right? And I wonder, right, I wonder, this goes back to even the conversation about, or I was talking about the restaurants and mm-hmm. stuff like this. How do we step into that mm-hmm. new possibility fully, right? The potential of that new possibility. How do we step into that new imagination? How do we let ourselves do that? Because I think the reality for us in this country are, are lots of our culture, lots of who we see as corridors is adaptations out of resistance, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> as opposed to authentic, mm-hmm. out of what you've built because of values that you have. But there's, there are things out of resistance. We're and, running away from something, not towards. Yeah, something. and so like, hmm. you know, I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm thinking a, a lot about there. There was this moment last semester where a classmate of mine, white woman, asked me um, about. She wasn't clear about what the complications were about being a white woman working in a community of color, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, my first reaction was like, the hardest side eye, (laughs) like the most smart, (laughs) smart (laughs) response. And I looked at her and there was this kind of puzzlement, like genuine obliviousness. And one side said, I don't want to labor to educate anybody because you know, I'm tired of this. I'm in this predominantly white institution. Like, I'm from the South. Like, I've dealt with it. This is my space. And, like, you just need to figure it out. But then there's that other side that says, what opportunity is this mm-hmm. to possibly have an impact so that when this person graduates and goes into the world, they don't have a damaging impact unintentionally and have been held accountable and a formative state rather than after the action has happened. And it's hard, it's not easy. And it's, you know, one of the biggest challenges I have is asking people of color to labor in that space, right? But there's this moment of 
recusal that I, I like to, to do or to like lift the burden off myself is to ask a question back, right? Because that moment being asked a question, you internalize and deal with all these complexities. And I'm, instead of doing that so instantly, I said, well, well, what do you th what do you think that is? And not in a accusatory or sarcastic way, but right. well, what are the first things that come to mind? And instantly, it's not on me, it's the space dialogue. And there's participation. Right. Then there's investment. And if there's a willingness to invest in the conversation, then you can go forward. But if it's somebody who's indignant and just like right. talking to hear themselves talk or asking the question to validate their own perspective, then I don't believe we should engage in, in those. And that doesn't mean you, you write off an entire population of people, but it may mean that a large sector of people who are unwilling to engage in the space with evolution, people disappear and uh, <laughs> ideas disappear. disappear. And we have to be more willing to have the conversation with people who are willing to have the conversation. Right. Equally, there was this, this moment of writing off of, a, of another classmate, a white woman who asked about diversity, who said, you know, I'm not sure what people's questions are about the diversity of this program or the spaces because it's the most diverse that I've ever seen in my life. And immediately there was this, um, this vitriol, like this persecution. And it's funny because it wasn't exclusively the people of color. It was other white people right. who considered themselves milestones ahead. And I remember in conversations after having to challenge them to say, this is a gateway. There are millions of people who feel the exact same way. And your persecution only pushes her and those millions of people further into a corner. Right. And there are many of those people who are willing to engage in this dialogue. And so to be able to say, hey, well, maybe this time it's not the community of color you have to be willing to work in. Hmm. Maybe <laughs> we have to deal with self and the complexities and the expansiveness of self. And that means within the construct, racial construct. And what kind of profound work comes out of that? Right. It says, you know what, maybe I need to go deeper in to resolve that issue and complication because the person who feels like that may be my uncle, maybe my parents, and God forbid, maybe my, my future kids, right? So if I'm not willing to deal with that fullness and like challenge it, then I'm just equally a part of the problem. Mm. But I do want to say that to both of you, I really appreciate having this conversation about these tensions that exist inside of our community about change, not yeah. change, what it supports, what it doesn't support, yeah. and being able to just talk about that, because it's, it just shows up in so many different ways. And it's kind of like, I read this article the other day about the rise of the right mm -hmm. uh, among millennials mm -hmm. and their organizing thing. And it was, it was really interesting. And so they had done this survey on Capitol Hill and other places about who pays their interns and who doesn't. Mm. Wow. And most of the interns who work for the right get paid, and most of those who work for the left don't. Don't. Right? Mm. And this is just real interesting, and it reminded me when I was doing this work, well, with the algebra project with Bob Moses and folks like this, and there was this time where we were bringing these, you know, college students to help out and everything like that. And as we were building the plan for us, we said, well, you know, we've got to pay people and we've got to pay them a, a good wage. 
But there was this thing of, well, you have to earn your way. You have to suffer. Yeah. <laughs> in order, you, you know this, right? Oh, yeah. I'm not here for it. And and that was my AmeriCorps position. Yeah, right? you got to suffer. If you don't, you have to do that to have cred in the movement. And it's like, and like things are designed that way, right? right. Programs and organizations are actually designed on that premise. Right. Which is like crazy. I mean, that's the AmeriCorps, like, cult thing, right? And, and one thing I kept telling, it's funny, it was uh, very, like, painful, I guess. But, but there was this comment about uh, privileged poverty is what I call service oh, yes. corps, right? Yep. To be a part of an AmeriCorps cohort and to realize that the majority of people in the group were coming from very, yep. like, economically privileged, educationally privileged yep. environments. But then also to be able to take a year and say, financially, I will set my pay or stipend at the poverty line. Right. Right. Of the the parish or county I'm in for a year. And the majority of AmeriCorps members like, don't have housing as a guarantee. Right. And we were fortunate enough to have a university connection that understood housing is critical. But even in that, right, to be able to say, I'm working in community, and then after this, this can be used as leverage, right? So imagine for the New Orleanian who didn't go to college, who decided to sign up, who was asked to belabor in these same critical race economic issues in the city that they're born and raised in. So there's a double labor, right? Wow. There's a doing the work, right? The pain and economic value and suffrage, right? But then there's that psychological thing that says you have to sacrifice even more to participate. And in that same moment to see people go out on vacation, parents fly them to Malibu and there and there. And I'm like, like what? I am like losing my mind with this car, <laughs> this bill. And, like, and, I, and still being in New Orleans, having the family and support network, it still was a, a struggle because what I was doing was new and unconventional. What is city planning? What is that? What is, this community work, is this gonna pay off? I thought when you graduated from architecture school, you would <laughs> salary and like big money and you know, two lies there. Architects <laughs> don't make so much money <laughs> at all. And just think about um, community work being uh, valueless mm -hmm. or not being able to sustain. And so that has been kind of the underlying current of how do I like support myself and now that's expanded outside of economically, right? Socially, spiritually, emotionally, and still do community work. Still do it, right. Mm -hmm. As a critical way of like existence, not just, mm -hmm. oh, I gave a couple hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or whatever, I created this nonprofit. Right. Or I serve on a board, like, no, how is this a part of my daily life from my mm -hmm. engagements? One-on-one -on -one interactions to a big investment. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's where this, the civic nature exists. When this becomes so in tune with the way that we breathe, eat, and sleep, then we're in a different space. Yeah, that's exactly. You have to be in and you have to be all in and you have to be willing to learn something that you don't expect. And this is, you know, I always talk about this thing about Nepotly living in the space in between. Mm. You have to also be able to have a, a way of coping. 
with the fact that you're living in these dualities mm. at the same time, right? Yeah. And you know that duality of being in a world that you want to change and you can see what's wrong, working for a world that you want it to be and living in a space that's neither one of those things mm-hmm. and both of them at the same time. And it's hard, right? You know, you go out there every day to work on something and at the same time you can see, you know, you're working to change one thing and you can see the production keep going to mm-hmm. keep that thing happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As you're working to try to change it, right? And you see the benefit of it too. Yeah. The work that you're doing, but you keep wondering. But I think often those two things are held in opposition. Yeah. And not as they coexist. They right. coexist. Right. And for the time being, like that is okay. That right. is you right. know, and we often kind of pit it with this tension. It's like if you're not up, you're down, if you're not left, you're right. Yeah. You know, and like you can't exist in on the continuum. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things we have to do to hold each other. It's one mm-hmm. of the biggest things we could do. I think is make it okay for people. Find mm-hmm. a way to talk about that and say, yeah, mm-hmm. that's what it is. Mm-hmm. That's okay. As mm-hmm. opposed to stepping into that mm-hmm. polarization space. Mm-hmm. Kind of a recognition that that's where we are. I'm just basking in all of your words. This was incredible. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, no. Thank you for, for having me. This is definitely... Um, Oh, it's a, it's a good space to be in. Uh, a really good dialogue. I definitely appreciate like your questions. Oh, that's been great. Oh. I mean, it's just wonderful having you. I think the thing for me that comes up, you know, in listening to Dijon, yeah, is you know he he talks a lot about equity. Yeah, his work is about really kind of the issues around social justice and equity. Yeah. But in order to build that, he's had to build these real kind of collaborative structures to make that happen. That's right. And it's making me wonder a lot as you think about this, about how some of these principles are so interconnected. Yes. That you, some of them are operational, I think. Right. And some of them are really value sets. Right. And I think what we see in Dejan is this, this taking a value set of, of equity and really applying it and having them use the tools of collaboration as a mechanism to make them happen. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because not only are these tools sort of overlapping in that way, but even at the sort of microest of levels, they're so critical. I mean, he talks not only about equity in terms of supporting these black business owners in relation to the rest of New Orleans, but he talks about equity even within the group of black business owners, right? And talks about how not everyone felt like their voice was valued, how he began to arrange his 8 a.m. meetings on Mondays, God forbid, to, you know, to bring people together. And I think that sort of experience of being conscious of equity and collaboration and the margins at every sort of level of engagement is, is so powerful to hear. Yeah, I think, as you said, it's a really clear example of what does it mean to take these principles and actually apply them on the ground and yeah. how complex it is. Yeah and the amount of work it takes for someone to do it. I think the other thing that really came out in talking with Dejan for me is something we've been dealing with here, which is the whole notion of home. Mm. And what does oh, home man. mean to us? And right. how do we re-engage with home when we, when we depart? Right. And what does it mean to come back to home through an institution yeah. that's really other? Yeah. And place yourself in that. And you know, I think people who may be planners, Organizers and stuff, people who work in civic engagement can also find themselves like, well, I'm back home doing this work. 
and I'm working it through some institution that probably from when I was home was the thing I didn't like or the thing mm -hmm. that I was opposed to or didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And I have to work through these other entities to connect to a place that's actually my home. Right. Even, right, and even the place that has shaped so much of you requires that extra effort. Yeah. And I think one thing he talks a lot about, maybe not explicitly, but one thing he mentions is the way in which he had to engage and be present for these various business owners in order to build this trusting relationship mm -hmm. to help create this equity and create this collaboration. And I think it's interesting how there are certain spaces where a certain kind of like almost commodification of trust and trust building in relationships, how it looks, right? Like in certain places, this handshake is a form of trust or this prompt email exchange is a form of trust. Right. And in Dejan's experience, sitting quietly, <laughs> watching transactions in a bookstore for six hours was what was needed to build trust with this business owner. Really important, I mean, really important, powerful piece there, Ayushi, because I think sometimes moving into different spaces and different communities, as you say, what it takes and what it requires to build trust with someone varies. Yes. And we can't walk in the door assuming that the exchange that actually supports trust is going to be the same. It's going to be no. very different. Right. And, you know, at the base of that is how do people know you're going to show up? Yes. Right. I mean, that's really at the base of it. And there are lots of ways that, that you know, depending what the other person has gone through, right. depending on who you are, right. that can shift right. quite a bit. But I, I think it's a beautiful example because one could assume that here's Dejan, this young black man, He's from New Orleans, that all he had to do was kind of walk in the show door up. and kind of right. like show up and Physically claim it because right. I'm there, because <laughs> I'm part of this. But his humility and his humbleness yeah. Yeah. to be able to say, no, even me yeah. from here yeah. have to build trust. Yeah. And yeah. to take the time to do that. Yeah. I mean, he talks about, you know, taking people, like driving people to errands to help them out, showing up for people in these very sort of almost like familial ways, which I think could be seen so differently in a different context. And it just, I think it's really important to think about how, what it means to show up is so different depending on the context, depending on your place in that context. And it's hard to ever teach. I mean, I'm thinking as a student, it's so hard to learn that in a classroom environment. Yes. And to give like a how-to guide on what to do in these situations. And so it does require a lot of like almost checking yourself and self-accountability and pausing to realize your own role in this space and walking in in a humble way to realize, hey, if the goal at the end of the day is to bring people together, you know, for the sake of this equity or this collaboration, there's no right way for me to actually do that beyond understanding what I can do best. Yes. Right. And that could mean so many things. It's such an intersectional approach also. Like I think there's so many ways that showing up differs based on the variety of identities that you bring to a space. Exactly. And that's kind of the unspoken part of like community participation and, and civic engagement, right? Is that like engagement looks different based on not only who you're engaging with, but who you are. But who you are. Who you are. And who you are willing to bring into that engagement yeah. of yourself. Exactly. Yeah. And what that authenticity looks like based on the sort of 
inevitable like transaction of your identities in relation to the to the folks you're working with. You know, it'd be really interesting. I think I'll do this for myself the next time I show up at a meeting is to ask myself, well, really, what are the parts of my identity that I'm actually bringing into this? What are the parts that show up in the meeting from other people? And could I have taken the risk to bring another part of my identity into this room as a way of actually building trust? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's also then kind of opening up this door of vulnerability, which is really a lot of what happens in these spaces. Right. Right. At least it's what we want to happen. Yeah. And how do we lead with that? Or how do we at least create the example of that that allows other people to then step into the space of vulnerability? Exactly. Exactly. All right, then. Oh, amazing. He's amazing. He's so great. I'm so glad we had him here. I know. But he's not coming back a third time. No, no. Never again. We're done with him. (laughs) Okay. Join us next week when we have actually Danielle. DeRoyder Williams. Joining us from San Francisco. It's actually going to be a wonderful show again. Another amazing mind. And until then, join us on The Move at MIT.edu. And feel free to shoot us an email as well if you'd like. We can be found at, again, The Move at MIT.edu. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks.